Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, a surprising burst of light appeared in the sky at the same time as a collision of two black holes. Was the flash a cosmic coincidence? Or do physicists need to rethink what black holes can do? Then, in our second segment, columnist Michael Nielsen discusses how the physical nature of computers might reveal deep truths about their uniquely powerful abstract abilities. First, After Black Holes Collide, A Puzzling Flash by Kevin Hartnett. On September 14, 2015, at almost the exact same time that a pair of sprawling gravitational wave detectors heard the last gasp of a collision between two black holes, another more perplexing observation took place. Over 500 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, the orbiting Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope logged a passing burst of gamma rays, a high-energy form of light. The signal was so slight that the NASA scientists who run the satellite didn't notice it at first. The gravitational wave detector LIGO saw a bright event clear in their data, and we found a little blip in our data that's really only credible because it happened so close in time to the gravitational wave, said Valerie Connaughton, a member of the Fermi team. On February 11, 2016, the Fermi researchers posted a paper to the scientific preprint site archive.org describing the gamma-ray burst. They speculated that it likely originated from the same black hole merger that produced the gravitational waves observed by LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. The correlation, which is far from certain, would append entrenched assumptions in physics. Astrophysicists have long believed that black holes exist in a vacuum, as they tend to swallow up all nearby matter. This absence of matter means it should be impossible for two merging black holes to generate a flash of light. If you don't have charged particles, you don't have magnetic fields, and you can't get electromagnetic radiation, said Adam Burroughs, an astrophysicist at Princeton. It's too clean a system. But the gamma-ray burst detected by the Fermi satellite suggests that perhaps the neighborhood around a pair of black holes isn't so empty after all. In the days since the Fermi team released their paper, a number of astrophysicists have hastened to propose theoretical explanations for how matter might persist around black holes in high enough concentrations to generate a gamma-ray burst. These theories involve flights of astrophysical imagination pulled together in the wake of a historic event to explain an observation of light that by all accounts should not have been there. Gamma rays fall at the very end of the electromagnetic spectrum. Of all the varieties of light, they have the shortest wavelengths, the highest frequency, and the most energy. Millions of times more energy than ultraviolet light, for example. It takes extreme conditions to create that much energy, and only two known astrophysical events might do so. One is the collapse of a massive star into a black hole. As the stellar core falls in on itself, it shucks off its surrounding envelope of matter and forms violent jets of energy that propel that matter out into space at nearly the speed of light. 
These are the so-called long gamma-ray bursts, which account for about 80% of all gamma-ray bursts and typically last around 20 seconds. The second mechanism for producing a gamma-ray burst is the merger of two very compact objects, such as a pair of neutron stars or a neutron star in a black hole. In the case of a star in a black hole, matter from the star forms a ring of material called an accretion disk around the black hole. As the material from the accretion disk falls into the black hole, jets of energy form along the axis of the merger. The result is a short gamma-ray burst, which typically lasts less than two seconds. Gamma-ray bursts are the great pyrotechnic events of the universe, explosions on a scale that we can hardly imagine. They also provide astrophysicists with a way of seeing hidden cosmic events. Short gamma-ray bursts allow us to view dark objects, Connaughton said. When these objects merge, they produce a violent jet of energetic particles and we see the violence in a phenomenon that would otherwise look very dark. On September 14th, Fermi detected a short transient event that registered as a blip. It was so dim that the team did not even notice it at first. Later, when they learned that LIGO had detected a gravitational wave, they went back through their data to see if Fermi had seen anything interesting at the same time. Using an algorithm developed by Lindy Blackburn, an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a member of the LIGO team, the Fermi researchers searched for faint blips in their noisy data. That's when they saw it, a burst of gamma rays that arrived 0.4 seconds after the gravitational wave and lasted one second. It had characteristics of a typical short gamma ray burst that, at its origin, contained 10,000 trillion times the amount of energy the sun produces over that same length of time. Whether the gamma-ray burst was real rather than a detection error, and whether, if real, it's connected to the LIGO event has become a topic of intense debate in the weeks since the Fermi team published their paper. The team has roughly established that the gamma-ray burst came from a 2,000-square-degree region of the sky. Combined with the 600-degree LIGO localization, the arrival direction is reduced to a 200-square-degree patch of sky, supporting the conclusion that the gamma-ray burst and the gravitational waves originated in the same place. The timing of the two events suggests this as well. Fermi detects blips of this magnitude about once every 10,000 seconds, or about every 2 hours and 47 minutes, making it unlikely, although not impossible, that the near-simultaneous observation of the gamma-ray burst and the gravitational waves was a coincidence. It's a low-chance possibility, but it's not impossible that this happened by chance, Connaughton said. That's why we're circumspect about claiming this is a counterpart to the LIGO event. It's a three-sigma result, not something we take to the bank under normal circumstances. In fact, at the same time that Fermi noted the burst, another gamma-ray detector, the European Space Agency's integral satellite, observed nothing. From our perspective, it is quite unlikely the event Fermi has detected is related to the gravitational wave event, said Carlo Ferrigno, a member of the integral team. More fundamentally, the Fermi team is being cautious about linking the two events because the merger of two black holes is simply not supposed to generate light. Everything is in its favor except for physics, which is a problem, Connaughton said. The physics does pose a problem, or at least a riddle. 
To produce a gamma ray burst, you need some conventional matter like an accretion disk around the merging object, said John Ellis, a particle physicist at King's College London. I think it's pretty clear if you're talking about the merger of neutron stars, you'd have that matter. It's not so obvious around black holes. The accuracy of Fermi's observation will be resolved over time. LIGO will presumably detect more gravitational waves. As it does so, the Fermi team will look for corresponding gamma-ray bursts. If they find them, they'll know they're onto something. In the meantime, astrophysicists have been trying to explain how there could be enough material around a pair of black holes to produce a gamma-ray burst. Bing Zhang, an astrophysicist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, has speculated that if one or both of the merging black holes contained a charge, that charge might be sufficient to create a magnetic field that could generate a gamma-ray burst. But according to the general consensus, astrophysical black holes should have no measurable charge. Another proposal comes from Rosalba Perna, an astrophysicist at Stony Brook University. In a paper posted to archive.org on February 16, 2016, she and two colleagues speculate that two massive stars locked together in a binary star system might both die, forming two black holes. As the second massive star in the system dies, debris from its envelope might fall back toward the core and settle into an accretion disk. Then, as a merger begins, the companion black hole would enter the other through this disk, powering a gamma-ray burst. Avi Loeb, the chairman of the astronomy department at Harvard, has offered a third possibility. In a paper posted to archive.org on February 15th, and subsequently accepted for publication in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, Loeb describes how a pair of black holes might originate simultaneously inside a star 100 times as large as the Sun. As he envisions it, this massive star was originally created when two smaller stars combined. The conditions of that merger cause the massive star to spin very rapidly. When it eventually begins to collapse, the centrifugal force from the spin causes its core to break into two clumps in a dumbbell configuration, and each clump forms a black hole. With the two black holes gravitationally intertwined, inside the remnants of the massive star. It's sort of like a pair of twins in the belly of a pregnant mother, and as they come together, they make one black hole, Loeb says. The black holes in Loeb's scenario eventually merge, and because the merger takes place inside a massive star, there would be plenty of material around to fuel a gamma-ray burst. In fact, Loeb imagines that as much as a whole solar mass would fall into the newly created black hole per second at the time of the merger. Loeb's paper is only the beginning of an effort to explain an observation that, if it holds up, would demand a new way of thinking from astrophysicists. A rapidly spinning supermassive star of the kind at the center of his proposal has never been seen. Additionally, in scenarios where a star has a rapidly rotating inner core, the core doesn't usually split into two dumbbells. It creates a flattened disk with spiral arms. Over the next year, Loeb and others will run computer simulations to determine whether it's possible to generate the conditions described in his paper. Some of Loeb's colleagues are skeptical that his scenario will end up working. Personally, I think this is a bit of a stretch, said Burroughs. There are a few tooth fairies that have been concatenated here to explain what may be a spurious detection. Others think that Loeb's paper points the field of astrophysics in the right direction, regardless of whether it ends up being correct. 
As always in science, when there are important new discoveries, in this case LIGO, there's a time of early speculation where people throw out ideas, said Volker Brom, an astrophysicist at the University of Texas, Austin. I think Avi's paper is excellent because it focuses people's attention on what needs to be done. It's definitely plausible. In time, the authenticity of the Fermi detection will become clear. If it does prove accurate, theories will eventually develop that explain how two black holes create a gamma-ray burst. They may resemble the ideas that have been proposed by Zhang, Perna, and Loeb, or they may end up looking completely different. What's clear is that post-LIGO, there is a lot of new science to be done. The rush to untangle the implications of the post-gravitational wave world is already underway. Second, The Physical Origin of Universal Computing by Michael Nielsen. Imagine you're shopping for a new car, and the salesperson says, Did you know this car doesn't just drive on the road? Oh, you reply. Yeah, you can also use it to do other things. For instance, it folds up to make a pretty good bicycle, and it folds out to make a first-rate airplane. Oh, and when submerged, it works as a submarine. And it's a spaceship, too. You'd assume the salesperson was joking, but we take a comparable flexibility for granted in our computers. We can use the same machine to fly past the Statue of Liberty with a flight simulator, make financial projections using a spreadsheet, chat with friends on Facebook, and do many other things. It's very nearly as astonishing as a single machine that works as a car, bicycle, and spaceship. Two characteristics of computers make this flexibility possible. First, computers are programmable. That is, by inputting an appropriate sequence of instructions, we can change a computer's behavior. Second, Computers are universal. That is, with the right program, we can make a computer perform any algorithmic process whatsoever, as long as the machine has enough memory and time. These ideas of programmability and universality have become so embedded in our culture that they're familiar even to many children. But historically, they were remarkable breakthroughs. They were crystallized in a 1937 paper by Alan Turing, who argued that any algorithmic process whatsoever could be computed by a single universal programmable computer. The machine Turing described, often known as a Turing machine, was the ancestor of modern computers. To make his argument, Turing needed to show that his universal computer could perform any conceivable algorithmic process. This wasn't easy. Until Turing's time, the notion of an algorithm was informal, not something with a rigorous mathematical definition. Mathematicians had, of course, previously discovered many specific algorithms for tasks such as addition, multiplication, and determining whether a number is prime. It was pretty straightforward for Turing to show that those known algorithms could be performed on his universal computer, but that wasn't enough. Turing also needed to convincingly argue that his universal computer could compute any algorithm whatsoever, including all algorithms that might be discovered in the future. To do this, Turing developed several lines of thought, each giving an informal justification for the idea that his machine could compute any algorithmic process. Yet he was ultimately uncomfortable with the informal nature of his arguments, saying, All arguments which can be given are bound to be fundamentally 
appeals to intuition, and for this reason rather unsatisfactory mathematically. In 1985, the physicist David Deutsch took another important step toward understanding the nature of algorithms. He made the observation that algorithmic processes are necessarily carried out by physical systems. These processes can occur in many different ways. A human being using an abacus to multiply two numbers is obviously profoundly different from a silicon chip running a flight simulator. With this in mind, Deutsch stated the following principle. I'll use his words. Although the language is specialized, it's actually pretty accessible and fun to see in the original form. Every finitely realizable physical system can be perfectly simulated by a universal model computing machine operating by finite means. In other words, take any physical process at all and you should be able to simulate it using a universal computer. It's an amazing inception-like idea that one machine can effectively contain within itself everything conceivable within the laws of physics. Want to simulate a supernova? Or the formation of a black hole? Or even the Big Bang? Deutsch's principle tells you that the universal computer can simulate all of these. In a sense, if you had a complete understanding of the machine, you'd understand all physical processes. Deutsch's principle goes well beyond Turing's earlier informal arguments. If the principle is true, then it automatically follows that the universal computer can simulate any algorithmic process. Since algorithmic processes are ultimately physical processes, you can use the universal computer to simulate addition on an abacus, run a flight simulator on a silicon chip, or do anything else you choose. Furthermore, unlike Turing's informal arguments, Deutsch's principle is amenable to proof. In particular, we can imagine using the laws of physics to deduce the truth of the principle. That would ground Turing's informal arguments in the laws of physics and provide a firmer basis for our ideas of what an algorithm is. In attempting this, it helps to modify Deutsch's principle in two ways. First, we must expand our notion of a computer to include quantum computers. This doesn't change the class of physical processes that can be simulated in principle but it does allow us to quickly and efficiently simulate quantum processes. This matters because quantum processes are often so slow to simulate on conventional computers that they may as well be impossible. Second, we must relax Deutsch's principle so that instead of requiring perfect simulation, we allow simulation to an arbitrary degree of approximation. That's a weaker idea of what it means to simulate a system, but it is likely necessary for the principle to hold. With these two modifications, Deutsch's principle becomes Every finitely realizable physical system can be simulated efficiently and to an arbitrary degree of approximation by a universal model, or quantum, computing machine operating by finite means. No one has yet managed to deduce this form of Deutsch's principle from the laws of physics. Part of the reason is that we don't yet know what the laws of physics are. In particular, we don't yet know how to combine quantum mechanics with general relativity, and so it's not clear that we can use computers to simulate processes likely to involve quantum gravity, such as the evaporation of black holes. But even without a quantum theory of gravity, we can ask whether computers can efficiently simulate the best theories of modern physics, the standard model of particle physics, and general relativity. Researchers are actively working to answer these questions. 
Over the past few years, the physicist John Preskill and his collaborators have shown how to use quantum computers to efficiently simulate several simple quantum field theories. You can think of these as prototypes of the standard model of particle physics. They do not contain the full complexity of the standard model, but they have many of its basic ideas. While Preskill and his collaborators haven't yet succeeded in explaining how to simulate the full standard model, they have overcome many technical obstacles to doing so. It's plausible that a proof of Deutsch's principle for the standard model will be found in the next few years. The case for general relativity is murkier. General relativity allows for strange singularities that rip and tear space-time in ways that are not yet fully understood. While numerical relativists have developed many techniques for simulating specific physical situations, to my knowledge no complete systematic analysis of how to efficiently simulate general relativity has yet been done. It's an intriguing open problem. In his book, The Sciences of the Artificial, the polymath Herbert Simon distinguished between the sciences of the natural, such as physics and biology, in which we study naturally occurring systems, and sciences of the artificial, like computer science and economics, in which we study systems created by human beings. At first glance, it seems that the artificial sciences should be special cases of the natural sciences. But as Deutsch's principle suggests, the properties of artificial systems such as computers may be just as rich as those of naturally occurring physical systems. We can imagine using computers to simulate not only our own laws of physics, but maybe even alternate physical realities. In the words of computer scientist Alan Kay, in natural science, nature has given us a world and we're just to discover its laws. In computers, we can stuff laws into it and create a world. Deutsch's principle provides a bridge uniting the sciences of the natural and the artificial. It's exciting that we're nearing proof of this fundamental scientific principle. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.